Lord, we do agree with those prayers and know that you've called us to lay our burdens and our concerns to you. And we do that this morning, knowing that you are sovereign and you will work in a mighty way beyond what we can think or imagine. And we we know that some of the prayers that you say no to are because you see a bigger picture and a better plan than what we can envision. But we leave these with you, knowing that you are, in fact, looking after our best interests. So this morning we also desire that if there be anything that hinder us from clearly understanding and hearing your voice from your word, that we would uh, set those things aside. If there's unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with, that we may deal with that, that we may be cleansed and open channels to what you have to say, and that we may leave here closer to you and conformed more to your image. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Been meaning to mention also next Sunday, I might end the class on time. I think all of you know that we kind of go about 10 minutes extra because we have the time. But I'm going to be at Faith Bible Church. I don't know if any of you would be interested. I'll be doing the main teaching there. So appreciate your prayers. Also, I'm doing another debate with Mike Idenburn, and I'd appreciate your prayers there. Yeah, he's a an old earth guy, and that's the issue that we'll be debating. You're welcome to come and pray while you're while we're there. And what was else that was I mentioning? Oh, this coming month I'm going to do the teaching for Creation Science Fellowship. So lots of things coming up. Anything else? I'll begin this morning by asking uh, you a question. When we think of the Apostle Paul, most people have a very elevated, and rightfully so, you know, he was an apostle, he was probably the the greatest of the apostles, if you want to put him on a scale, I guess from God's perspective we don't do that, but probably more is known about Paul than perhaps anybody else other than Jesus Christ. So we have a kind of an elevated picture of him. So the question I want to ask is, can you name two or three things that we have in common with Paul? Obviously, none of us are apostles. None of us, well, maybe Bruce has founded a church. Most of us have not... Lord in his side. We all have thorns in the side, okay? And how's yours done? A little sticky today. He was an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever at one time. All of us experienced unbelief, came to Christ. Any other things we have in common? We struggled with the flesh. That's exactly the point I'm getting at here. In other words, he had the same struggle with the flesh that we experience, and that's what this passage is all about that we're going to look at. So we're in chapter 7, 13 through 17, and in that, in fact, there's a debate, and what I'd like to do is give you some background on it, because not everybody takes the passage the way we will take it, and I want to give you a little insight into different ways that commentators take this, and some even entire you might say denominations or churches view this passage because they have a hard time seeing Paul experiencing the things that are described here. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So we're talking about Paul and 
He experienced hardship. That's another thing that we have in common with him. We, none of us, to the extent that Paul did, but he even spent some time in prison. And when we were in Rome, we passed by there. We didn't visit the Mamertine prison, but we were close enough to to see at least the outside of it. So that's believed by tradition where he spent the last days of his life where he wrote uh, Second Timothy, where he records in that book his eminent expectation of execution. And tradition tells us that shortly after he, in fact, was beheaded in the city of Rome. So Rome is the letter that he writes to believers that resided there. I've been showing photographs, new ones from Rome, you don't remember when I took this one, do you? Yeah, right. You had those stilts. I had the stilts. Yeah. Question for you on that. Impressive structure. structure. Go ahead. On architecture policy, um, was that outer wall all the way? I don't think so. I think it was kind of like what they build stadiums today, where you have a press box and you have VIP boxes. Yeah, I think that was the extent. So quite... And by the way, does anybody remember from the trip how many people it seats? I keep track of these things. Forty. Forty. Pretty close. They gave us between fifty and seventy-five thousand. So it would be comparable to any professional football stadium today. Archaeologically, or what do you? Yeah, I think so. That's the only one that I'm aware of. There are many, in fact, many what are called theaters that would serve somewhat the same purpose. The Greek Greek theaters in any major city in the Middle East, many in Israel, lots in Greece and other ancient sites. You have what are called theaters, which are semicircle seating, I guess you could say. But... In Rome, which, remember, was actually the center of the world at the time. This was the center of the empire, so you would expect something spectacular. And seeing it even today, 2,000 years later, you still can visit it. Anyway, we're in the Book of Romans. We've looked at justification. We're focusing on sanctification. Sanctification are the principles that deal with how do we live out salvation. Justification is the theological or one of the theological terms that speaks of a new relationship. For God, we stand condemned and guilty, but now we are acquitted, not because of anything that we have done, but because somebody paid the prison sentence, paid the price. And on the basis of that, we can be justified. That's the word that Paul uses. So what do we do after we are justified? We want to continue in this walk of righteousness. We call that sanctification. We've been looking at the three different parts to this portion, chapter 6. The focus are principles, but... There are principles in chapter 7 as well, although the emphasis is more on the problems. And we're going to deal with the major problem that we face and that believers have faced all the way back to the time of Paul. In fact, the passage is interesting 
in that it's framed in the first person. What we mean by that, Paul seems to be giving us his own personal experience. So we'll see what the major problem is. And then he gives the solution, and uh, stay with my alliteration. We have principles, problems, and there is power in chapter 8 available. Power to overcome the problems, power to be victorious in Christian life. And just to remind you, in chapter 7, even though 6 focuses on principles, we've developed and drew from chapter 7 some principles as well. I gave you nine principles from chapter 6, so we'll continue with number 10, and these are in chapter 7. And one of the main things that he's getting at at the very beginning here, in fact, even all the way back to chapter 5, we're no longer under law, but under grace. What's he talking about there? He's talking about being released from the law. And what he's getting at, first century believers, particularly Jewish believers, would understand, but Gentiles as well, that there was an economy, you might say, or a dispensation, or an era, in which God dealt with humanity in a particular way, and it had its own particular characteristics. We call that a dispensation. Now, in some circles, that has become kind of a negative word and has carried negative connotations, but it's a perfectly good and accurate theological term, and I have no problem calling myself a dispensationalist. So, We're talking about a church age or a church dispensation. And in that time frame, believers are not under law. And that was the focus of the first part of chapter 7. And it's been hinted at, in fact, overtly stated in other passages as well. And what we mean by that is the Mosaic Covenant. I don't know if I made this clear last week. But the Mosaic Covenant was designed for a particular time frame for a particular people, for the nation of Israel. It was their constitution as a nation. It regulated everything about the Jewish culture, the Jewish nation. It dealt all the way from bathrooms, you might even say, all the way to the most sophisticated, uh, higher end, the whole politics of the nation of Israel. And it's very detailed gives lots of specifications, lots of laws, lots of instruction. That's the Mosaic law. That's the Mosaic covenant. We are not under that covenant. God is dealing with humanity in a different way in the what we call the church age. That doesn't mean, when we say that, that doesn't mean that we just rip the Old Testament out of our our Bibles. We talked about that. That's antinomianism. And then on the other end of the spectrum that we also talked about, now we don't observe the law in all of its details and check off the boxes and try to please God by obedience, whether it be Old Testament law or New Testament law. That's the other end of the spectrum. That's legalism. We dealt with that. And I gave you some other dangers that are inherent in that as well. So this is a very important principle. God is dealing with humanity differently. We are now, chapter 6, under a new time frame with new characteristics. And the most important characteristic is now 
we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that was not present in the Old Testament. There were only selected few that had that privilege, you might say, of indwelling presence, prophets, kings, in fact, not all kings, some kings, had this presence of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit of chapter 6, that's the major characteristic of this age. And in that relationship, that replaces for this era the Mosaic Covenant. So that's what it means. So we don't go to that covenant, we don't go to the law to try to be sanctified. And by the way, the point I made as well is even Israel, the law was not designed to sanctify them as well. Other than setting forth the things that would sanctify, but the law could not. There was no power in the law to sanctify. It laid out the areas that you are to be set apart and separate, but it gave no power to be able to to perform it. So, church-age believers are not under law. Another principle that we looked at, first part of Romans 7, law was never intended to and cannot sanctify believers. So now, stating those two principles, we might have the idea, well, is there a problem with the law? Is the law somehow tainted in some way? Is the law sinful? And we looked at that last time, and what we learned is... The law is useful for exposing sin, not for giving power to avoid sin or to deal with sin. It is one of the functions and design of the law. So is to uh, make us aware of the standards of God, make us aware of the nature of God, make us aware of sin. But we are not regulated by it in the church age. So... The law is useful for exposing sin. So that brings us to the passage we're looking at, problems. The law cannot sanctify, verses 1 through 12. And we can include New Testament law. New Testament commandments cannot sanctify as well. Legalism. In other words, trying to please God by obedience. Trying to check off the boxes. Okay, did I do this? Did I do that? Did I do this? That does not sanctify. The law cannot sanctify. The rest of the chapter, we're going to see the sin nature cannot sanctify. And we are comfortable with living in that old sinful nature. And there's a comfort zone in there. So we go back to that. And that's the battle or that's the struggle that uh, 13 through 25 is dealing with. So we're going to look at 13 through 25. The sin nature cannot sanctify. And I think that's at the heart of the passage. Now, he weaves in that. He still is talking a little bit about law. In fact, we have, I think, a little transition in verse 13 that we'll look at. But what I think the emphasis is, is in our own strength, in our own efforts, we cannot sanctify ourselves. Does that make sense? You seem to, you're, you're, you're frowning. Why would you think the sin nature could sanctify anything? Well, you're talking about the sin nature being our human efforts. Our human efforts okay. in our own strength. Yes. Yeah. That's what I mean. So he's going to lay out, first of all, the case. 
And I'm using, in this case, I'm going to use C to alliterate. If you notice the outline, everything starts with a C, so we'll start with the case instead of the issue. The case of the sin nature is raised in verse 13, so let's take a look at it. But before we get into it, let me give you, and on your outline sheet at the top there, or towards the top, I've got the different ways that this passage is taken. It is a little bit difficult, and if you have a high view of Paul, like I laid out in our introduction, and most of us have that high view, it's hard to envision Paul experiencing what he describes here. But in reality, if we're honest, Paul is human. Paul has the same nature as we do. And we can identify with this passage, but what what about the Apostle Paul? I mean, he, he was way up here. Well, that's not the case at all. So views on the experience. The first two are not so common, but you'll find them in some commentaries. Anyone trying to keep the law will have this experience. Now, there's a truth to that, but I don't think that that is the entirety of what we have in the passage. The second one is kind of more specific Jewish people keeping the law before they became Christians. So I say B.C. there. Jewish people trying to keep the law. This is the frustration. Paul being the representative of that group. So what Paul is relaying Even though he says, I, it's more an I of general reference. In other words, I as representative of the Jewish people that have come to know Christ. This is what we experienced before we came to know Christ. This frustration that is developed in the passage. And because people have a hard time, they say, well, it had to be Paul. Maybe Paul, and they take the I more personally. Paul is describing autobiographically, and I would agree with that part. He is, I think, autobiographical here. And he's describing, this is the place where the unbeliever lives. And they'll give lots of support for that idea. They have a hard time with a little phrase in the next verse, verse 14, that we'll get to. When he says, I am sold under sin. How can a believer, how can you say that a believer is sold under sin? Everything is said in chapter 6, we've died to sin, we've experienced resurrection in Christ, there's been a separation, there's been a clear break, all the things that we've been talking about, the believer that he's experienced, now how can Paul go back and revert and say, I'm sold under sin? And we'll try to answer how he can do that. And the whole passage, some say, man, this is negative, this is defeat, this is not the Christian life. This has to be Paul expressing what he experienced as an unbeliever. Or when he says in verse 7, 15 through 16, he's incapable of doing good, very good that he wants to do, he cannot do, but instead he does the very evil that he does not want to do. That's not a description of a believer. A believer can do what God wants him to do. A believer can be obedient. And Paul says, I'm incapable of that. And also in verse 18, so 7.15 through 16 is used as evidence that Paul has to be describing himself as an unbeliever. And then when verse 24, this is the cry of an unbeliever, cry from for deliverance from the Savior. And he raises Christ Jesus in the next verse. He's the solution, and he is, in fact, the Savior. 
So they use that as evidence that he's describing himself. And we have Christ not until 25. So 25 is kind of a transition from the unbelieving experience to chapter 8, where we have the Holy Spirit and the experience of victory over sin, etc., in uh, chapter 8. And that's used as evidence that Paul is as an unbeliever. So are you convinced? No? Well, actually, personally, as I study the passage, I have taken this view. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. I have. So I'm curious to see how you're going to get out of this. (laughs) Get out of this dilemma. Okay. Uh All right. What experience are you used on? What experience? Chapter 7. Chapter 7. What experience? Let me just read it. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Yeah, and he goes on, and he goes on all the way to verse 25, and he ends, you know, wretched man that I am. In fact, you could add that to the list. Because an unbeliever, wretched. All right? Unbeliever, then... We'll get to that. Good point. So Paul, number four, as a believer, in other words, still autobiographical, but now Paul as a believer. Now, every one of you should be able to give give me the number one reason why this view is favored over Maddie's view. Paul is an unbeliever. Yes. In other words, he's describing what it was like before he came into a saving relationship with Christ. And Maddie's view? Is that it? That's Maddie. That's her tentative conclusion until today. An unbeliever under the law. Unable. Utterly. Yes. Under the law. Yep. And I would agree with part of that. If the unbeliever cared. Hmm? If the unbeliever cared. Oh, but the lots of, there are lots of people who care that they're yeah. loved and who are disturbed that don't find yep. their sin. I mean, they maybe would call it sin. They're disturbed. Yep. And that's part of what drives us to Christ. Yep. Is that disturbance mm-hmm. and that conviction of our sin. So I don't think it's fair okay. to say. Okay, what's number one? All right. Well, we'll 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 talk about it. What's number one on our list? What's one of the most important hermeneutical principles? Context. Context. Remember, in real estate, location, location, location. In biblical interpretation, context, context, context. What is the context of the passage? Sanctification. We're in the sanctification portion. He's dealt with justification. He has beginning with even chapter 5, transitioning in chapter 5, and then beginning 6 through 8, the topic, the overarching thing that he's dealing with is sanctification. So to go back, you're going back to the portion where in some detail he dealt with the issue of the unbeliever, and now with sanctification, He's going to the next stage. He also uses first person singular and present tense. 
In other words, this is a present experience, autobiographical, and this is a shift. He's talked, when he talked about a past experience, he's framed it in the past. And when he talked about the Romans, he framed it in the past. And now we have a a change, which it's predominantly, even in the first part of chapter 7, he talks about we. And he talks about uses aorist tense and imperfect tense. And now he is using predominantly in this passage, 13 to the end, uh, first person singular present tense, indicating present experience. And autobiographical or personal, this is what I experience when I attempt to please God in my own efforts, pulling myself, my Christian self, up by my own bootstraps. You know, we keep saying, for what I am doing, am doing. Am. Yeah, it's present tense throughout. Okay? And we could say only, now Maddie's going to strike that one out, but that's okay. (laughs) Only, I think, the believer can truly... Do what it says, first of all, in 15 through 16, only the believer can truly and honestly say, I hate sin. In other words, I hate the very thing I am doing. The unbeliever takes much pleasure in it. Now, I think the believer does too, but we have a an increased sense of the severity of sin and the requirements of God's standards. Only the believer has a desire, a will to do good. Now, the unbeliever has a will, but he really doesn't have insight into what is really good. But you have a renewed sense of righteousness, of goodness. And if you are unable to do it, you're grieved, and there's lots of anguish here. There's frustration and pain. So the believer, and that's verse 15, that's verse 18, verse 19, verse 21. Does the unbeliever delight in the law? Verse 22, I delight in the law. Is there a delight there? No. The unbeliever is condemned by the law. And he's in agony because he knows he can't reach that standard. No matter how self-deceived he may make himself and think of himself, he does not delight in the law. It, It only condemns him. The believer tries to obey it, 15 through 20. The believer serves the law, verse 25, when we get there. It's only the believer if, in fact... We are facing this struggle that seeks deliverance from that. That's also verse 25, deliverance from Christ. Not for salvation, but deliverance from this frustrating, defeated Christian experience. And there's other indications there. There's a tension, you might say, between what we want to do and we know we need to do and what what is right with the capacity and the ability to do it. So that would be number three. And the unbeliever doesn't analyze his situation the way Paul does, bringing out all of these elements and the frustration. The believer has an accurate and a more sensitive picture in terms of sin. And he comes to the conclusions that Paul comes to. This kind of a lifestyle is, in fact, frustrating and brings me to a point of wretchedness where I am weighed down because I know I can't live up to the standards. I can't be sanctified by the law. So it's the analysis of the believer. And the description of the unbeliever in chapter 3 through basically the end of chapter 5, but 
at least through chapter 4, is different, and we could compare the description. There is none righteous, no, not one. And you can read the Romans 3 passage on and on and on. Very different, very striking from what we have here. There, the will is that there's none that seeks after God in terms of an unbeliever, truly, that affects the will. The will here is conflicted, the desire to do what God wants, as opposed to none seeking after God, etc. You can go down the line. So the description is very different. And somebody look up Galatians 5.17. It fits the description of other passages, and I could give you some others as well, but this is probably the, the most striking one, Galatians 5.17. And he's talking about the believer very clearly there. The believer attempting to walk in the Spirit. In fact, that's the contrast. Walk in the Spirit in contrast to walking in what he describes as the flesh. Now, we won't get to the flesh entirely today. We'll touch on it, but we'll get on it next week. Somebody look that up, and then Maddie's got before that. 517. Okay, who's got 517? Anyone got it? Flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do things that you wish. Okay. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's in a, that's chapter seven in a nutshell, I would say. Yeah. So, fits the Christian battle. There you Don't go. Don't you think we're also thinking when he says, that's why you need the armor? Right. Because we don't war against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual battle. Spiritual. Yeah, there's lots of passages. And there is a battle, and there is a struggle, and the way I see it, and the way I'm going to take it, is that Paul is describing that battle that he himself experienced as well, in order to demonstrate that the flesh cannot sanctify. In other words, I can't please God, I can't uh, grow if I'm trying to do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to give you another graphic that kind of contrasts these ideas as we move move along. So verse 13, I see it as transitional. He's been talking about the law and contrasting that with, contrasting it with sin. Therefore did that which is good, remember in verse 12, the law is, and the commandment, righteous, what are the other words in there? Yeah, the law is holy. In other words, he answered, and we tried to answer that question last time. Is there something wrong with the law? And he's basically saying no. And that's why I spent a lot of time going over the Old Testament view of the law. In fact, I'm going to show you that slide again uh, very quickly. But he's reminding us of what he said in verse 12. The law is holy and the commandments, since he's talking about the 10th commandment, Commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the problem is not with the law. I used the illustration last time of an MRI. If you have an MRI, we have great technology today. And you have results given. And the results are that you have cancer. You feel okay, or you feel maybe a little off, but you don't realize that you have a drastic condition. So you get the report, and what do you do? Do you beat up on the machine? What a lousy machine. There must be something wrong with this machine. Well, maybe you might initially do that, but it's totally irrational. 
And you come to the conclusion, the MRI machine's good. What does it do? It reveals a condition. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the cancer. It's the cancer that is bad. And you don't say, well, put me through the machine so that it will start the curing or the healing process. The machine is not designed to heal. It's only designed to reveal and to show and to expose the problem. And it can be a guide, we talk about that, to the surgeon so they know where to make the incision and the size of the incision that's needed. And it gives them more data to be able to accurately and better deal with the situation. That's one of the functions, not the only one, one of the functions of the law. The law was not designed to heal. The law was designed to show, and it is a light, just as the results of the MRI sheds lots of light on a condition. In fact, it exposes it in all of its fullness. So I was going to say, I like your illustration of the MRI, but it goes far enough, because um, what I understand Paul is talking about in terms of the law and the simple nature, that the simple nature is so corrupted yes. that it that it's something good, like the law that says, don't do this, the simple nature is motivated yes. by that command to do the op, right, to do yes. the opposite yep. to break it. Yeah, Paul's um, made that point. So MRIs don't magnify cancer, they just expose it. Yeah. But the, but the, but the law and the simple nature um, is so Abuses it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it would be like the patient kicking the machine. Um, or doing maybe. Or expecting the machine to somehow add to the cure. That's not the design. And that's not the design of the law either. In other words, God never intended right. the law to solve the problem. The law was intended to point to the problem so that we might cry out to right. the surgeon, the but ultimate then, surgeon. I think it I mean, it's, it doesn't cause it, but it magnifies yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's not reaction. Yep. Yeah. So. And we've seen, and I gave you a long list, and I kind of reproduced part of it here. We looked at the Old Testament, and I just gave you the Psalm 19 passage. We won't look these up. It reveals sin, 7-7-2-8. This is the law's value, like the MRI machine, reveals sin, it's the instrument of God, and that's kind of alluded to in 7, 8, 11. And the law, if you use it rightfully, 1 Timothy 1, 8, if you use it lawfully, is what Paul says, it can do good. The law is not designed, what Paul is saying, to sanctify or to transform or the analogy we're using is to heal. And in 10, we saw this passage, it's intended to... It promotes life. And there's lots of Old Testament passages. One of them, Psalm 119.50. So the law is valuable. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. But it's not intended to cure. It's not intended to solve the problem. You say promotes life. There's a fine line. It doesn't give life. It doesn't give light. It just almost points to where the light is. Yes. It's a light. In other words, here's the path of light, of life. This is where God intends, and this is the path, but it doesn't give you the energy or the enablement to walk the path. Okay, good. 
And it's holy and righteous. That's verse 12. It's good, verse 12. And now in verse 13, and in verse 16, he's going to say it's good again. And interestingly, in 12 and 13, agathos, one of the words for good. In 16, kalas, another word for good. And I think what he's getting at here, it, the law fits the whole spectrum of good, using both Greek words here. The problem is not with the law. That's what we've looked at in the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 7. So, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And again, emphatically, may it never be. Absolutely not. Are you out of your mind? Rather, it was sin, and that's the point of the previous passages. He's making that contrast between the value and use of the law. He does not want to be accused of being antinomian, and this is one of the strongest passages that demonstrates that Paul was falsely accused when he's accused of being antinomian. Now, they didn't use that word, but basically that he undermines the Mosaic law. No, it's good, it's righteous, it's holy. The problem is not with the law, the problem is with sin. The problem is not with the MRI machine, the problem is the cancer that the MRI machine reveals. And it says, in order, and this is part of the purpose of the law, in order that it might be shown to be sin. It's going to expose all of the aspects of it. Just as that MRI makes it crystal clear, you can see it visibly in all of its degradation, the problem, and that's the purpose of going through it, in order that might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. There you go, good again so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What he's getting at here is that the full extent and the the evilness of sin would be fully exposed. It would be clear. Deceitfulness. Yeah, the heart is deceitful above all things. Mm -hmm. Utterly sinful. Yep. Very Radioactive Absolutely. Worse than cancer. Yes. So we've been contrasting. This is kind of a review. I'm not going to go over all of it, but 7.5, sinful passions working. 7.7, awareness uh, of sin from the law. Sin produces coveting. Sin becomes active, alive, and I died. Sin deceived me, killed me. The problem is with sin. We've looked at all of those verses. And now in verse 13, sin shown utterly. Sinful. Nothing redeemable there. And that's the point that I think he's getting at here is the flesh. And he associates very closely that tendency back to sin. We might call it the old nature, and I don't have a problem using that phraseology, but it's the sin that is the problem. And because he starts off with 14 through 17, he's laid out the case And now he's going to expand upon this issue of the sin nature and sin. And there's a captivity there. And I use that. I use the C. He uses the word sold under sin or a bondage. He's using imagery that he already developed in 
chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, remember the slavery image? He's reminding us of that whole imagery. And remember I had a series of slides showing how he's using imagery there. One little phrase brings us back. There's a captivity there. But he's dealing with, in this context, I believe, a, a believer, a, a person that can experience going back to captivity, but it's an issue of the will. And we're going to see he's going to bring out the idea of wanting and wishing and not being able to do the very things that we desire to do. So I call it the captivity of the sin nature, 14 through 17. The four, now he's going to expand on 13, for we know that the law is, he adds another element to it, the law is spiritual. He's had high comments. Righteous. In other words, it meets the standards of God. Holy. It it has the same characteristic and nature of God himself. It is good in that it can bring benefit. It can bring positive elements into the into play in the life. And now he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. The very nature of God, because it is derived from him. It has the attributes of God, righteousness, holiness, and now spirituality. And because of that, he's already hinting, before he gets to chapter 8, the need for spiritual enablement, because the law is spiritual, and it cannot be performed apart from the Holy Spirit. We can add to our list, we ended with verse 12 and 13, the law is good, now it's spiritual, verse 14. From God, derived by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and has that attribute that is reserved for God. And if we get down to verse 22, it's actually of God, the law from God. So how could it be sinful? How could it be tainted? And then verse 14, the last part of it, but I am fleshly would be a better way of translating it. He doesn't use the word sarks. He uses a word that is closely related, the adjective. Rather than the noun form, he uses the adjectival form. And next time I'm going to kind of give you a word study on that and how it's used, and particularly how it's used in this context. But let me start off in terms of the meaning of this word. He's going to use several descriptive words, I believe, of the sin nature. Now, I'll grant Maddie, the unbeliever, that's all the unbeliever has. He doesn't have a new nature. The believer has a new nature, but we are plagued with an old nature. And I think that's the point. So he's using the word, and we already saw in 6.6, he used a, a term, old anthropos. I can't remember the Greek word. Uh, what's the Greek word for old? Say that again. You. Yeah. Uh, that's one of them. There's another one that is used in six. Anyway, old man, reference to the old nature. Body of sin, also in that passage. It's another term that he uses for the sinful old nature. Fleshly, sarkinas, 714. Not sarks, he's going to use that later. So he's kind of going through different words here in this passage. Fleshly, that's probably a better way of translating, 714. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, or I am of flesh. 
This is my part of who I am as a total being. This is part of my nature, part of my makeup. Yes, I've been born again. Yes, I have the Spirit of God. Yes, I have a regenerated new nature. Yes, I have a new potential. Yes, I have a capacity to be able to please God. Yes, my eternal state has been settled. And on and on and on. And all of the characteristics that I acquire, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. Yes, all of that is true. But you still have the capacity, the inclination, and you might even say the nature to sin. And that's what, in this context... This is the way I take the phrase, sold into bondage to sin, because I have the same capacity as I had before that transformation. I have the same ability, and I'm going to confess sin before you. I have done worse things as a believer than I did under, you might say, the law as an unbeliever. The law restrained me. I was moral. Not that I'm immoral, but I'm saying, as a believer, I have the same capacity. And if you're honest, you'll agree that that's the case for you as well. So, in a sense, even though this is a strong phrase, it is strong because there is a strong inclination. There's a strong pull. And I would say 95% of believers, born-again believers, live in Romans chapter 7. A small minority live in the spirit, which we would describe as living in chapter 8. Maddie? Actually, no. This is an English edition, actually. Yeah. It's everywhere else it's used in its everyday sense. Selling some item of merchandise. Like the verbs have that selling bondage in the idea of the verb, or is there an object? No, there's a there's a preposition. There's a preposition. Yeah, sold hupo. Okay, so then the bondage related to slave, the imagery, the imagery that he's developing here, the idea of selling, and since we're talking about human life here, he's not talking about selling merchandise, but he's talking about. This person, in other words, I am sold, you could say, under sin or unto sin. But he is using, I don't dispute the translation, because I think he is alluding to what he talked about in chapter 6 in terms of the slave imagery. Okay, so bondage, but it's not exactly why in the text, it's actually in the text. Well, this is the way they're translating hupo. Oh, submission. The preposition. Submission to sin. Yeah. Yes. Submission to sin. Yeah. 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 Look it up. You look it up in your Greek text. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Ray. You're welcome. Change the whole argument, right? We've convinced you, right? (laughs) I'm the rest of us. Oh, the rest of us. I need to do something. I'm just giving Maddie a hard time. So there are two natures, and we've got to conclude here. Two natures, and I'll conclude this. We have the old nature. I've shown you this slide before. Body of sin, that's the word that he uses in 6.6. We saw it, we can see it in Colossians 2. Flesh, we'll get to that. Or fleshly, he uses the adjective in 14, but he also uses it in 1 Corinthians 3. We'll look at that passage as a key one. 
indwelling sin, another phrase that she's going to use here in the text, 717 and 18 and 20. Natural man in other passages, not in this context, but all of these are in Romans 6 and 7, except this one. And we also know there's the new nature. I gave you all this before, so you're frantically copying it. Ephesians 4, 23 through 24. We'll come back to this. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 through 3, 1, the, the, the new nature. The, the, the counterpart, uh, sarks or sarkinas, pneumatikas, I think is the way it is. Spiritual man, the spiritual man in 1 Corinthians 2. I've used the illustration, different terms that are used to describe the two natures or the old nature, like filthy rags, the Isaiah passage, unrighteous, sin, bondage, deadness, but we have a new nature. We have two natures now. We have all of the old, but now we have a new nature that God uses and blesses with every spiritual blessing, and I use the imagery It's like he's opened a new account, but we have to draw on that account in order to take advantage of those blessings. And next week I'm going to stress the eyes. How do you keep track of them? So this is just to kind of give you a clue as to where we're going to look at this passage. And I might ask you, this is the first person uh, singular where we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. See the conflict? And I've changed the coloring to kind of indicate which I is in play here, the new nature and and the battle between the old nature. But I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, the new nature, but sin which dwells in me. And I'm going to conclude. I I came up, I just thought of a, a fifth possibility here. It's not anyone trying to keep the law, even though it would apply. It's not simply Jewish people keeping the law before Christ. It's not only Paul as an unbeliever. I think it could describe that, not only Paul as a believer, but Paul is a teenage girl. That's another view. More a teenage boy. Come on, no, girl. Just kidding. I was lying through with Maddie. You can put boy on there for sure. You can put boy on there. I've got a grandson that's 14, and I'm telling you what. Teenage boyfriend. Wow. Okay. I'll change the slide for... Yeah, better than all of Okay. There's a real battle going on inside of us. This is probably the clearest passage in all of Scripture that describes it in detail. Mm-hmm. A real battle. Romans chapter 7. Who wants to close for us? <laughs> I had to get to that slide. <laughs> Who's got it? Linda, do you want to do it today? Uh, thank you, Lord, that Paul so aptly describes the struggle even as a believer, and that may we stay in, not in the default the old nature, continuously, daily, pursue, seek, uh, pray to be in the new, new nature. Amen. That's all, folks.